When I say the local church is essential and critical, I mean essential and critical the way a pacemaker is to a person with a diseased heart. You can't live without it. When I say it's essential and critical, I mean essential and critical the way a nursing mother is to an infant. He won't grow and be nourished without it. When I say the local church is essential and critical, I mean essential and critical the way a husband and wife's loyalty and fidelity are essential and critical to a trusting, loving marriage. You cannot love without it. Local church is to be the central set of relationships, of belonging to our spiritual lives. To put it, to put it another way, to put it in the negative. If membership in a healthy local church is not central to your understanding of the Christian life and your daily living, your worship, you are slowly, perhaps imperceptibly starving, shriveling, and becoming loveless, even if you don't feel it. How's everybody doing this morning? It's good to see all of you. I love that response, like nobody says how they're doing. It's all good. I get it. It's, it's Sunday morning. Um, I'm good. Thank you for asking. It's good, it's good to see all of you. Um, that was not me on that audio clip. That was uh, Pastor Thabiti Anabwale. He's a pastor out at Anacostia Church in Washington, D.C. area. Uh, great man of God. So I, I love that clip as it talks about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Um, so like I said, my name is Shay. I am a pastor here at Living Stones. It is so good to be with all of you this morning. I know I say that all the time, but really, truly, thank you for letting me be your pastor. Um, it, is, it is really an honor and a privilege. If you're joining back with us um, after our Easter service, we're diving back into Romans chapter 12. And Pastor Kyle jumped that off last week, Romans chapter 12, and we're entitling the rest of Romans Ordinary Christianity. What does it look like now that we've been saved by the mercy of God? Now what? Now what do we do? Uh, how do we live this ordinary Christian life in light of the fact that we've been saved by God? And Romans up to this point in chapter 12, um, we saw Paul do a brief overview of what it looks like to live in a Christian community. He said that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. He said we're to transform our minds, um, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. He says not to think of each other or ourselves more highly than we ought to. He says to uh, come together as one body of Christ. And that's where we left off one week, last week. Last week we ended with the idea that when we're saved, we're brought into a family of faith. But Paul, Paul says it's more like a body of faith, which with each person having a different gift and ability, but all using them together to glorify God, all under one mission of glorifying Christ. It's kind of like back in the day, you, you'd wake up on Saturday morning, at least I would, I'd turn on PBS and there was Bob Ross. You guys, you guys remember Bob Ross? Bob Ross. He had like this. It was a, it was a nice afro. It wasn't like juicy or anything. It was just a nice afro. And he would, he'd take a, he'd take a, a picture, a blank canvas, and within an hour, it was like a masterpiece was sitting in front of you. But the very first thing he would do, he would take a broad paintbrush, and he'd just put a base layer of paint on, on the canvas. And that's what Paul did in that first section of, of Romans uh, chapter 12. And then Bob Ross, he would go in with his finer uh, paintbrush and he'd do a little happy tree, 
over here in a little, little happy bush, a, a, a lazy river. You guys remember that? Happy birds floating all over the place. That's what Paul is doing through the rest of Romans. He's filling in the details of what it looks like to live in this ordinary Christian life. And that's what we're doing here today with this text. And it's asking the question, what does it look like to live in an ordinary Christian community? Just, just ordinary life, what does it look like? What does it look like for us to model Christ in, in how we love one another? And what, what we're reminded of as, as we see this love, we're reminded of Christ on the cross. And, and with Christ on the cross, he was commingling two different types of love. We see the agape love of God, and we see the phileo love of God as we, as we look at Christ on the cross. And if you're not familiar with those two terms, agape love is an unconditional, unmerited, without favor, love just for the sake of loving type of love. It's love just because. Sometimes it's love in spite of what the other person has done to you. And we see that with Christ as he's coming out of his heavenly throne to come and dwell among people to the point that he would die on the cross for them. Agape love of God. And then we also see the phileo love of God. Phileo is where we get our our word for Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And this brotherly love is, it's it's a familial love. It's, It's love that's born out of being in a family with someone. And when we see Christ upon the cross, when we see the love of God that loves us in spite of our wrongdoing against him, he invites us into a new family. So now, under the blood of Christ, we have a new blood family. We have a new phileo. We have each other. We have the church of God. We have Christ with us as the body, with Christ as the head. That's what we see when when we see this text and uh, to steal from Pastor Kyle last week, I mean, I'm completely ripping him off. So when you see him, don't tell him. Shh. Our, our faith is not just me and Jesus. It's we and Jesus. When Christ saved us, he didn't save us into an isolated faith. He brought us into a body of believers interdependent on one another for life and discipleship and growing up into Christ. We can't do faith and discipleship and love in isolation. We need each other. It's not just me and Jesus. It's we and Jesus. It's going to be the main point of what I'm driving home today. And when we see this love that's displayed and manifested in a Christian community, it must be a genuine love. It must be an active love, and it must be done out of humility. That's going to be my three points. It must be genuine. It must be active. And it must have an, an air of humility about it. So let's, let's dive into the text. If you, if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. If you don't own a Bible and you're grabbing one of those hard black Bibles around the room, we want you to have that. Uh, a part of the reason why we take up offering is so we can bless you with the word of God because we can see its life-changing effects as we actually dive into it. Um, so we want you to have it as a gift from us. Let's dive in. Page 948 should be in those Bibles. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let's read it. It says, let love be genuine. I'm going to stop there. This is going to be a long sermon. (laughs) Let love be genuine. The, the, The word that Paul uses here for love is that agape love. He said, love one, agape one another genuinely. That genuine being uh, up front, being, being true, being uh, love with integrity, 
When I think about integrity, I think of, uh, like, say you take your boat out to Pyramid Lake and, and, and you cast it out in the water. You have faith in that boat that it doesn't have cracks or holes in it. And the longer you stay out on it, you, you know you're going to stay afloat because it, it's a boat of integrity. Right? You guys see that? But if that thing got a crack down the middle of it, or there's a hole in the bottom of the boat, guess what's going to happen? Somebody's going to swim in. Because that boat doesn't have integrity. And that's, and that's what Paul is getting at with our love as we love one another in the Christian faith. If it's not love with integrity, eventually our love and our faith with one another, it will start to sink and it will fail. Let love be genuine, Paul says. Let it be with integrity, Paul says. And see, the opposite of integritist love is deception. And, and nowhere more clearly do we see this then we see Judas marching Roman soldiers into the garden to arrest Jesus. And the way that Judas betrays Jesus is by kissing him. A, a symbol of what's supposed to be a symbol of peace, a symbol of brotherhood, a symbol of, of, of love for the other person is now used to deceive that other person and bring harm to them. And maybe this has happened to you. Maybe someone has displayed some kind of, uh, of loving affection for you. Maybe they've, they've done something nice for you, but in the end, it was done so they can trick you and, and, and do something harmful to you on the backside of all that. It's hurtful. Let love, the agape love of God, govern and shape our relationships. Paul also says to uh, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Like, abhor evil, hate evil, have a disdain for evil things and cling to the good things. But we, we have problems with this because we love drama. Like, we, we chase drama sometimes. And, and if, you, if, if you don't believe me, check out your Netflix queue. Check out, check out your Spotify uh, song list. And, and see the messages that are, that are happening in those movies and in those songs. And I'm not, when I say drama, I'm not talking about the feel-good, uh, nicey-nicey, gushy kind of drama where you're snotting all over yourself because it's such a good story. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the sexually explicit content. I'm talking about the murderous intent that people have for one another. I'm talking about the crimes that they are willing to commit to one another. We are in love with it. The CSIs. The, 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 the crime dramas, the, the, the comedies that we thought were going to be comedies, but next thing you know, it is anything but funny. We're in love with the drama. And that's a problem as we come together in the body of Christ. If we're supposed to have genuine, integritous love for one another, one another, and we bring that drama into the church, we seek after that drama that's in the church. And so next thing you know, we're arguing with one another. Next thing you know, everything, every conversation we have with one another, you're wondering if the person is trying to stab you in the back because you're looking for that drama. A part of your heart is craving it. We cannot have genuine love for one another if we're not abhorring evil. Paul says in verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This almost has, it has like a competitive aspect to it. Like we should be loving each other so much that we start to compete with one another for how much good we can do to one another. And not like, 
I'm, I'm going to one-up you every time you do something for me. You give me a meal, I'm going to give you like a whole buffet. It's, it's not like that. It's not, it's not climbing the ladder on top of each other. It's actually humbling yourself before each other. So you do good for me. I'm going to definitely do good for you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. We can compete in this. We can, we can get it going. You get a prayer. You get a prayer. You get a prayer. I'm going to bring you dinner. You dinner. You dinner. I feel like we're on the Oprah Winfrey show. But check this out. How crazy is it that Oprah Winfrey has a better idea of phileo love than we do? We are the church. We are the body of Christ. We have the example of what phileo love looks like. So love must be genuine. That's what Paul starts out with. And it's the baseline of everything else he's talking about. Not only only is love genuine, it must be active. Look at verse 11. It says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So the first thing that we have to see when we have this active faith, it has to be energetic. It has to have some energy to it. So Paul uses these two words, zeal and fervor. So zeal is this idea that you're just, you're full of excitement about something. Like you're getting ready to go to Disneyland or, or you're getting ready to go to Mexico. Some, a couple just got back from Mexico. You're just excited about going to Mexico. Or you're excited about this new toy that you got. Like you're, you're just so full of energy about it. You, just, you can't shut up about it. Like you're just full of energy. That's what, that's what zeal means. I know zeal sometimes in the Bible is used in a negative aspect. But here Paul is saying you're excited about this thing. Paul himself said he was zealous to put the church uh, basically out of commission. But that's, that's not what he's communicating here. He's saying have passion and excitement about something. And then he said he uses the word fervor. That's, that's the idea of being on fire about something, like being, being in a, a bubbling pot with it or, or being ablaze with, with excitement over this thing. So essentially he's saying you're... Your life and, and love for your Christian brothers and sisters should be full of, of excitement and, and just boiling over to see them and worship with them. To, to be boiling over to come to church and worship God. A few years ago, I went to this uh, Christian hip-hop concert down in San Jose. Uh, and it was, it was some of my, my favorite artists, right? It was uh, this group named Hazakim. It was this dude named Timothy Brindle, this guy named Stephen the Levi. And, and if you don't know who these men are, uh, regardless of how you feel about hip-hop, these are godly men of Christ that are giving people the gospel over a hip-hop medium. They, they deserve honor. They, they are giving people the gospel, and people are coming to faith through this medium. But... I went out to this concert, and I am jazzed. When I tell you I'm jazzed, I don't, I don't get super excited a lot of times. I was jazzed. Like, I, am, I was ready. And I'm, and I'm calling my, my buddy up. I'm like, dude, they are coming to town. He's like, what? I'm like, yes, we got to go see them. And so we buy tickets, and we're, we're excited to go. And weeks out in advance, we're talking about and listening to the music. The day comes, and we're driving down probably about 2,000 miles an hour trying to get down to San Jose because we're so excited. You know how you get excited and your foot gets really heavy all of a sudden? That's what, that was us. And so we're, we're, we're going and we get there early so we can get good seats, so we can interact with the people and they're just as jazzed as we are and everything's going great. The concert happens like, what? We, our tushes never hit the seat, right? Super excited. Go through the concert. My, my voice is hoarse. I, I, get, I get done and we're driving home. We still can't shut up about it. Like we're driving home, still listening to the same songs we just listened to. 
I've seen, I've seen some people come to church or their community group, and you can tell by the expression on their face, they'd rather be anywhere else in the world than worshiping with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Absolutely anywhere else. Paul says, be filled with fervor. Be filled with zeal. God wants our active worship. He wants us to be excited about worshiping with the brethren. Active in our faith. Not just, not just passively taking it on. Active in our faith. But that's, that's tough, right? There's some days when that, the, the previous day was just too tiring. It was too much yard work. Or your kids woke up way too early and you got beef. Or I don't know. It's all kind of things of why people don't have this excitement when they get here. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. We need a constant renewal. We need to be constantly renewed in our faith. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate in verse 12. Look what it says. It says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Did you guys ever used to go to a Chinese food place and you get your fortune cookie and you open up your fortune cookie and you, when you read it, you add the little phrase at the end? Okay, so y'all, I know something. I, I want us to add a little phrase at the at the end when when Paul is reading right here, and I, the phrase I want us to add is "with one another." Okay, let's read this together. It says, "Rejoice in hope with one another. Be patient in tribulation with one another. Be constant in prayer with one another." We are not in this Christian faith alone. And when we feel like we're not being active in faith, it's because we're not engaging with one another. Rejoice in hope with one another. Did you get a new job? Rejoice in hope with one another. Are you having a baby? Rejoice in hope with one another. Did your car start this morning? Rejoice in hope with one another. Did your car not start this morning? Be patient in tribulation with one another. Do you have something going on in your life? Be patient in tribulation with one another. Be constant in prayer with one another. You want to know how to rejuvenate and renew your faith when you're just not feeling it? Be with one another. It is, it is the mark of a failed faith, those who continually isolate themselves. If you ever, you ever watch Animal Planet, um, the, the lions don't go after the big herd, they, they isolate one gazelle. And, and when Satan can isolate you is when you're in the most danger. With one another. Be active in your faith. Constantly renew one another. And then Paul talks about having hospitality as a, as a, a, a measure of your active faith. Look at it says in verse 13, it says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. I know when we hear the word uh, hospitality, the, the, I think the first word that pops up in our head is probably service. Would you guys agree with that? Like, like serve one another. But here's the thing. Hospitality is more uh, relationally driven than it is service driven. There, there's a way that you can be a hospitable person and a person comes into your house and you're serving them the entire time, but ignore them relationally, they will never feel your hospitality. But when you, but when you can sit down with a person and you can share your story at the same time as giving them a cup of coffee, now we're talking hospitality. Now, now our lives are commingling. Now, now we're building 
one another up. Now we're being active in our faith. Now we can pray for one another. Now we can be, be patient in our tribulation. Now we can rejoice with one another. It's more about your openness than it is about your service. So this love in a, in a, in a Christian community, it has to be genuine. It has to be active, and it has to have an attitude of humility. Look with me at verse 16. Let's go down to verse 16. It says, live in harmony with one another. Um, I was going to, like, when I think of harmony, I usually think of, of music, but I'm not going to go there this time. I'm actually going to go to food. Y'all like, y'all like food, right? So harmony. What does harmony look like in food? You, ever, you know, there's like, there's five different flavors that the human tongue can experience, which, praise God, little taste buds on your tongue can activate in a way. I, God is amazing. Anyway, that was, that was sidebar. Spicy, salty, sweet, and, and, and sour. And, and, and when those things come together in one dish, that dish is amazing. But what happens when one of those is out of balance? What happens if you add a little bit too much salt? It is ruined. You ever made a dish that was way too salty? Or, or you put too much vinegar and you're like, oh, no, this is going in the trash. <laughs> Paul's saying live in harmony. That, that, harmony takes humility. I, I love garlic. I put garlic in everything. I put garlic in cereal sometimes. I'm, I'm kidding. I don't. I love garlic. But if, if garlic uh, is, is, is the best... Um, if, if it's the best spice to me and I use too much, I'm, I'm going to overpower the entire dish. You guys get where I'm going with that? If, if, if they do not all humble themselves to marry together in the perfect blend, the whole thing is ruined. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. There's some of you that may have more skills than this person. Show enough. You might have more skills, but you are called to live in harmony with one another. You, you might be the best orator that the world has ever seen, and you look at this person that's uh, sweeping and mopping the floors and think you're better than them. You're not. Both are contributing to the body of Christ so that we can honor him. Live in harmony with one another, it says. And then that second half of verse 16, it says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I think the point that Paul is driving home here is the difference between uh, sympathy and empathy. Sympathy, uh, you, can, you can look at a person's situation and you can say, man, I feel sorry for them. And, and you might be genuinely like sorry for them, but, but it's from afar. And you say, man, I'm going to pray for them. I'm, I have sympathy on them. Uh, empathy isn't like that. Empathy uh, goes out of its way. It, it, it humbles it, itself to go into the person's situation and dwell there with them. It, it might be the messiest situation ever. But empathy dwells in the midst of that situation. That's what Paul is saying here. Like you have to, you have to have empathy to, to, to live this humble life in Christ. He says, don't be haughty. Humble yourself. Have empathy with that person. Can you imagine if Christ didn't have empathy on us? Can you imagine if he stayed in heaven and said, Dad, I feel sorry for them. I think I'll pray for them. But he didn't do that. He got off of his throne. He, he put aside a piece of his divinity, humbled himself to the point of humiliation and dying on the cross to come and dwell in the flesh. He dwelt with us, experiencing 
every single tribulation just as we do, yet was without sin. It's the mark of humility. We see empathy at work when we see Christ. So I want to go to verse 17. But here's the thing. Commentators usually say that this is a point where Paul kind of switches his focus and and takes his focus away from uh, the church and puts it on people outside the church. And uh, as people are outside the church, what do we do when they do harm to us? But I think if if you guys are like me, I'm I'm prepared for that. I'm I'm, I'm good with that. Like I I can face it. My my heart is prepared for it when, when I have opponents outside the church. It's when my focus is on the outside of the church and I get stabbed in the back that really hurts. But where I'm from, we call those people frenemies. People that look like they're your friend to your face, but they're anything but when you walk away. What do we do with those people when they're in the church? And even though Paul may not be saying that, that's what I'm going to say this morning. So here we go. Verse 17. It says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Paul says, as, as people that may be stabbing in your back when they do stuff to you, trust me, I've, I've had Christian friends that I had as close as brothers to me stab me in the back. And it hurts. It hurts way more than somebody outside the church trying to hurt me. And maybe you've experienced that too. Somebody in the church has done you wrong. It says, don't repay evil for evil. Give thought to do what's honorable. If they talk bad about you to your back, talk, about, talk good about them to their face. Don't go this whole tit-for-tat thing. Try to, try to do what's honorable toward them, Paul is saying. Build them up. Don't try to tear them down, even though they're trying to tear you down. Whew. Y'all, I'm, I'm preaching to myself on this one, man. Right. Verse 19. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Listen, I know Infinity War is getting ready to come out pretty soon, and I'm just as excited as you are. You are not a Marvel Avenger. Just so we're clear. You you are not some DC superhero vigilante that gets to take wrath into your own hands. The Bible says that vengeance belongs to the Lord. It is not yours to repay. Paul's saying here, leave space for God's wrath to to be exercised, if God so chooses to exercise his wrath. That's why we don't take it in our own hands. We are not God. Vengeance and wrath belong to the Lord. And then I've heard some people pray this. Like I've literally heard people pray this. God, so-and-so did this to me, get them. It's like when we were kids and like somebody was picking on you at the playground and you got an older big brother. You know, I'm going to go get my big brother. He's going to beat you up. But listen, Jesus is not your attack dog. You can't sick the Holy Spirit on people. My question to you is, do you trust God enough to love people who do you wrong and let God worry about their judgment? I'll, I'll ask that again because maybe you guys didn't hear me. Do you trust God enough to love people anyway and let God worry about their judgment? It's about trusting God, but that takes humility, right? That is a humbling thing to set aside what you feel like you should be avenged for. 
It's tough. I got people right now that I'm ready to go. Pray for me. (laughs) But that's what makes Christ the hero of this story. That's what makes Christ the fulfillment of all these things. Look at what it says in verse 14 of how we can rely on Christ. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Paul is drawing our attention back to Jesus' sermon uh, back in on his Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew 5. Look what it says there. It says, you've heard, it said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven versus sons of the devil. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? Tax collectors were were thieves back then. Don't even thieves do that? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Gentiles were considered pagans. Don't even pagans do that? What? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) I, I failed like three times this morning. Because the call is to, li- to love with, with perfect genuine, with, with perfect integrity. The call is to, to, to be active in our faith all the time. The call is to have complete humility in all of our relationships. That is the call. That's why we rely on Christ. We can't do it perfectly. That's why he had to come and do it perfectly on our behalf fulfilling the totality of the law so that we can love God and love our neighbors under the blood of Christ. We can see uh, Jesus' example of how we, we, we have empathy for one another. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We see Jesus perfectly rejoicing with those who rejoice when he's at the wedding feast playing the bartender, turning water into wine. We see him, we, we see him uh, weeping with those who weep perfectly as he's crying at the, at the grave of his best friend, Lazarus. We see what it looks like. And, and there's sometimes we mess this up. We need Christ. We need him to be the hero of our story. We need him to do these things perfectly on our behalf. Christ died so that we could have the ability to live like this. And he sent his Holy Spirit to empower us to model Christ. So we pray for those things. So now what, Pastor Shea? That's a, lot of, that's a lot of good talk. How do we apply this stuff? I think Paul gives us a few examples of how we can apply this. Go back to verse 18 real fast. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Listen, there's going to be times when you're trying to live this way and, and people are just going to flat out reject what you're trying to do because they've, they've got their own stuff. They've been... Either, either emotionally or spiritually or maybe even sometimes physically abused. And you're not going to be able to, to live peacefully with them. But so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone you come in contact with. And listen, I know like there's some stuff that happens to people and they end up being victims of crimes. So far as it depends on you, you may not be able to enter into this relationship with this person again. Uh, and probably the safest thing for you is to step away from it. But think about this. Christ did. Christ entered into the relationship with his victimizers. 
Look at verse 20 as another application point. It says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Uh, I think people have used this, this verse, uh, and you guys have heard the phrase, kill him with kindness. You guys heard that? Maybe, maybe you've even used it before, right? I, th- I think it's false. I got this whole soapbox issue. I'm, I'm trying my best not to kill my soapbox. Listen, um, Christ didn't do that to us. Christ from his throne didn't say, I'm going to go kill them with kindness. He said, I'm going to give them life with my grace and mercy. If, if the intention of you doing kind things for other people is to heap burning coals on their head, you're missing the point of what Paul starts out with. Let love be genuine. And I'm thinking about this whole hot coals thing. And, and, and hot coals in the ancient Near East, they were used to, to cleanse and to purify and to sanctify. And so there was a way that people would heat up hot stones and they would, they would maybe put them on an open wound to, to close the womb. And so, and so like purify that wound. Or they, or they put a, a hot coal into, into their cup so they, could, so they could boil their water to cleanse and purify it. Sometimes these, these crazy dudes will put hot coals on their heads as, as a way of trying to look, make themselves look good to God. I don't know what that's about. Anyway, in the New Testament, what is it that we have that cleanses, purifies, and sanctifies us simply by touching us? It's the blood of Christ. It's Christ himself. Christ can be seen as this hot coal in verse 20. It's Christ that we heap up on people's heads. Some people doing wrongs to to us, we pray for them. We show them in the scripture how Christ loves them. We give them Christ. People try to do uh, bad things to us, and and we we, we give them Christ. We don't don't worry about heaping punishment or, or, or condemnation on their heads. We simply give them Christ. Verse 21 is like a summary. It says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. What are the evil things that Paul is talking about here? He's talking about how people, when you curse people or when, or when you repay evil with evil or when you try to avenge yourself. He says, don't be overcome by doing those things. Overcome those evil things with doing good. So instead, bless people. Do what's honorable. Leave room for the wrath of God if he so chooses to exercise his wrath. Those are, those are how you come evil, by doing those things. And listen, church, uh, the, the world is watching us. The world is watching how we live with one another, and sometimes they are rejecting the head because of how the body's acting. They are rejecting Christ because they see how we treat one another. We, got, we, we have to get this right. We, we have to pray about these things. If, if, if one of these areas is lacking in your life, engage with one another. We, we have to do this. This is our mission that Christ has given us. Love one another genuinely, active in our faith, attitudes of humility. And listen, if you're not, if you're not a part of the body and you're here today, we get this wrong a lot. A lot, a lot. Christ is redeeming us, though. Christ, Christ has to dig down deep and root the evil out of us. There's, there's some of us who've been alive for 50 years, and we've jacked our lives up for 50 years, and Christ has to undo 50 years' worth of junk 
before we could look more and more like Christ. But but it's the best thing that's ever happened to us. And we have Christ. And we have each other. Christ thought so highly of the church that he was willing to leave the relationship with his father to come and redeem his people and create this. I think, I think we need to give it more clout than we do. I think we need to be more excited about it than we are sometimes. And this is how the world is going to know. Look at what Jesus says in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Church, let's love each other. Let's have genuine love for each other. Let's be active in our love for one another. Let's serve one another with humility. And so we will show Christ to a dark world. Amen? Amen. You guys pray with me. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this message. I, you know I needed to preach this. Um, but you were so good. You were, you were so good to us, um, better than we, we could ever be to ourselves, better than we would ever be to one another. Continue to show us what it means to love each other genuinely, to love one another actively, and to be humble in our relationships with one another, God. We need you on this. We want to be your representations to, to this world that needs you so much. God, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for being willing to die for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for dwelling with us so that we can live this life in modeling Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.